Let's read together. This will be from the 13th chapter of the book of Acts. And if I have my math correctly, this should be the 29th message in the study of the book of Acts. And this began a year ago tomorrow. After a summer's worth of Esther last year, we jumped into the book of Acts, having completed the book of John before we studied Esther. And now after a summer's worth of Ecclesiastes, having finished that last week, we go back to the book of Acts. And let me read this for us. This is the 13th chapter, verse 1. Now there were in the church at Antioch prophets and teachers, Barnabas, Simeon, who was called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Manaean, lifelong friend of Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul. While they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. Then after fasting and praying, they laid their hands on them and sent them off. Verse 4, So being sent out by the Holy Spirit, they went down to Seleucia, and from there they sailed to Cyprus. When they arrived in Salamis, they proclaimed the word of God in the synagogue of the Jews. And they had John to assist them. When they had gone through the whole island as far as Paphos, they came upon a certain magician, a Jewish false prophet named Bar-Jesus. He was with the proconsul Sergius Paulus, a man of intelligence, who summoned Barnabas and Saul and sought to hear the word of God. But Elimus, the magician, for that's the meaning of his name, opposed them, seeking to turn the proconsul away from the faith. But Saul, who was called Paul, filled with the Holy Spirit, looked intently at him and said, You son of the devil, you enemy of all righteousness, full of all deceit and villainy, will you not stop making crooked the straight paths of the Lord? And now, behold, the hand of the Lord is upon you, and you will be blind and unable to see the sun for a time. Immediately a mist and darkness fell upon him, and he went about seeking people to lead him by the hand. Then the proconsul believed when he saw what had occurred, for he was astonished at the teaching of the Lord. This is God's Word, and let's pause for a moment. And ask his blessing to help us understand and obey what we've just read. Father in heaven, we thank you for this, the first week of September. Lord, we thank you to be back in the book of Acts. Lord, we thank you for its contents, its truth, its capacity to change our lives, to make us look less like ourselves and more like you. Lord, we thank you for the, the prospect of sitting together as brothers and sisters on this first day of the week with our Bibles open. And we ask your blessing on other churches doing the very same thing. And Lord, by the time we've, we've, we've spent our portion together, Lord, will we be able to say, it's been good to be in the house of the Lord, to glorify you, to learn at your feet. We ask all this in your precious name. Amen. Well, it's been a while. It's been a summer. I know it's difficult to try to remember from one week to the next what was said the previous week, but to remember an entire summer ago may call for a little bit of uh, review, which is always good. Um, we can't review important stuff enough, but weeks and weeks and weeks ago, actually a year ago, I think this was probably said even in the introduction, that the major theme of the book of Acts, and, and it makes sense because of its position behind the Gospels, four different records of what Jesus did when he was here on earth. Uh, some of them start out with the Christmas story, but they all end with the Easter story. And then a few uh, weeks afterward and an ascension back into heaven. But basically the opening of the book of Acts is a reminder that Jesus left those disciples of his that he spent three years with, minus one who had gone out to hang himself, that would be Judas. And in the introduction, they replace him with the man named Matthias. And really, the Great Commission is reviewed there, where Jesus says, you will be my witnesses, starting in Jerusalem, then in Judea, then in Samaria, and then to the othermost parts of the world, to do what? to tell people what I taught you. 
You're not qualified or given the authority to make anything else up. You just tell them what I said and keep telling them. And then tell other men who will tell other men in different generations what you saw me do. So the theme, the major theme, the overarching theme of the book of Acts is the word of God going out as those who were witnesses to Christ's ministry told others the things that Jesus taught them. It's very simplistic. So even that early, we were using the theme, no matter where you open in the book of Acts, you can say the word of God keeps going out as it is carried further and further from Jerusalem where these events took place. And as it's going out, God is bringing people in as their lives are changed by the truth of this message, they're given a heart of flesh and trade for their heart of stone. They go from being lost to found, blind to seeing, dead to being alive. The church is growing as brothers and sisters are added to the adopted family of God, but only at the sound of the Word of God. So that's its overarching theme, to redeem a lost world, the, the power of God's Word to save. And then we talked about a sub-theme under that major theme. It comes up here and there. We see snapshots of the way the early church looked. We see things that were important to them, how they handled certain things, or difficulty or obstacles. That's what we're going to see today. And there's a warning that goes along with looking at the early church the way it was in its infancy. Some of it is descriptive. They did these things on this date at this place early in the church's history. It's just a description. But then there are times where there's prescription. Here's how the early church did it, and so should you in perpetuity. These are things that God directed its church to do or to be involved in. And context and careful study help us understand the difference between just a description and prescription. And then there's another sub-theme under that sub-theme. Are you counting all the sub-themes? We're three, three steps down here. And that is the introduction of the church's activity as organized in missions efforts. You, you get all the way to the 13th chapter of Acts before you see your first missionary sent out. But basically the rest of the book charts the activities of these missionaries that were sent out. Basically, the rest of the book is Paul's missionary journeys. There'll be three of them. Now, there have been people going out and preaching in Gentile areas, but most of that had to do with the persecution in Jerusalem and the Christians fleeing for their lives, taking the gospel with them, and preaching it wherever they were. This is the first organized church sending out of missionaries for the purpose of carrying that gospel to people who don't have it. That's what we look at particularly today. So here's where we're at. What the Word of God looked like is what acts as is its major theme. What does God's Word do? It goes out and people come in. But we're also looking at what the church did and how it was built and what it looked like as it functioned around that Word of God and the gospel. And then today specifically, we're looking at what missions sent out from the church that was built on the Word looks like as they carried that message to locations who did not have the gospel. So here's what I think best to do as far as what we just read. There's two paragraphs if you're looking at it. The first three verses talk about Paul and Barnabas being sent off as those first missionaries. And then in verses 4 through 12, we see something that takes place as a result of their being sent out. I want to look at them backward. The big paragraph first and more briefly, and then we'll go back and look at the first three verses. There's a reason for that. And uh, how else shall I put it? I think that looking at the problem, who's this guy named Bar-Jesus and his buddy, the proconsul, Sergius Paulus, and what's this that Paul is saying to the face of this man who's known to be the son of Jesus, but he calls him the son of the devil. That's their first problem as missionaries. Well, let's handle that, and then we'll go look at the basis for which these missionaries were sent out. 
all tying together the mentions of the Holy Spirit along the way. And I think we'll, we'll have a, a, a package with a bow tied around it. The method of Luke in the second paragraph, that's verses 4 through 12, is that of uh, selection. Not unlike what we looked at with John in his gospel where he said, many other things did Jesus do in the presence of the disciples which are not written in this book, but these are written so that you might believe. Same with Luke. There's so much he could have said, but he didn't say. And then there are things that he does say, and we've got to figure out why he said them because they must be important, isn't it? I mean, there are inconsequential things that happen in our lives that we wouldn't necessarily put in a book if somebody wrote it about our lives, right? There was the process that I went through this morning to decide to wear this tie rather than another one. But you didn't come to church to hear about that or why I'm here. You came to hear the words of the Lord inspired and written by Luke. But at the end of the day, we've got to figure out what's important and why he's saying it. And if you look at this... He mentions a host of locations on his, his way, especially through these islands. And doubtless these men fulfilled their ministry in every place they stopped. But Luke only gives us details in a couple of those. Uh, one of them was, well, they preached to the Jews in the synagogue when they got there, and, and John Mark helped them. But most of the details come when they get to Paphos, which is on their way all the way through the island of Crete, and where they stopped, and that's where they met this fellow. So when Luke does give details where previously he did not, we have to be sure that there's a purpose there, and contextually with the Holy Spirit being mentioned all over the place, it's probably to show us the important method that the Holy Spirit used in communicating his message and directing his people to do what they're supposed to be doing. However, without a context, little of it makes sense. So there's going to be some details surrounding a primary principle detail. And then there's some other stuff that just is attached to it so we can make sense of the story. Most of it we can throw out just to get to the meat. So we're on a quest to answer the question, where's the beef? <laughs> In verses 4 through 12, right? So you've got this guy named Bar-Jesus. He's also called Elimus. But we're going to say that that's incidental. That, that's not the main point. That guy, because he comes on the scene and goes off the scene, we don't know anything about him before, and we don't know about him uh, anything afterward. The same with Sergius Paulus. He's also incidental, just like Elimus. We have no background or subsequent history. There is one unique little piece that's attached to this that's not even in the, the Bible, and that also is incidental. For centuries... People accused Luke of making a mistake here because if Luke knew his geography and he knew the Roman Empire, this guy Sergius Paulus would not have been a proconsul. It was the wrong rank because where they were was, was, was not a, a touchy situation. They didn't need enlistments with the military structure to uphold it. Unless, of course, in the modern area, era, we dig up something with Sergius Paulus's name on it and that title and the designation that it was the type of place where those recruits would have been and Luke was right all along. But the assumption was made for so long. No, 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 that wasn't the way it was. It was the way it was. So he gets back the badge, best historian of antiquity. It'd be a biblical author, Luke, who wrote the Gospel of Luke and the book of Acts. That's neither here nor there. Another interesting factoid. The name change for Paul. That's inconsequential. From here on out, it goes from Saul. That's what was called before chapter 13. That's his Hebrew name to Paul, which is his Greek name, from chapter 13 on. Now, I know some of you might have been raised the way I was. And there's this unfounded... Uh, thing that we just kind of attach to Scripture because we see it attached in other places, that God changed Saul's name to Paul when he changed his life on the road to Damascus. Only problem is he was called Saul for a long time after that. And there's nowhere in Scripture that says that that's what happened. Now, we do know that Jacob's name was changed to Israel and Abram's name was changed to Abraham, and God said that on purpose. But in this case, 
more than likely, it's just while he was around Hebrew folk, he went with his Hebrew name. And then when he went off to preach the Gentiles, he went with his Gentile name because it made sense that way. But there's no, there's no divine action. Hey, I changed your life. I'm going to change your name. He changed more than his name. He changed his life. That's the important part. What is central seems to be introduced in verse 4 by the phrase, so being sent out by the Holy Spirit, they went. And then that's strengthened by the second mention in verse 9 where Paul is filled with the Holy Spirit. So they're sent out by the Holy Spirit and then they're filled with the Holy Spirit. Nothing is said until they get to the end of the island of, of, of Cyprus and the location of Paphos. And lo and behold, Paul's filled with the Holy Spirit to do what? Well, look at verse 9. But Paul, who was also called Saul, who was also called Paul, filled with the Holy Spirit, looked intently at him and said, You son of the devil, you enemy of all righteousness, full of all deceit, villainy, will you not stop making crooked the straight paths of the Lord? Now, what had happened? You got this man, Sergius Paulus. He wants to hear the gospel. He calls for Paul and Barnabas. And that's also something that's different. Up until now, it's Barnabas and Paul. From here on out, it'll be Paul and Barnabas. That's, again, not the main point. The main point is the Holy Spirit is filling his missionary to confront an enemy or someone holding up production as far as the evangelization of this area where they're now preaching. Um, bar Jesus, maybe some of you have studied, you know that the word bar simply means son or son of. So bar Jesus means he's son of Jesus. Jesus was a very popular name. It's not Jesus of Nazareth here. But it just means son of Jesus. His name was Elimus. Uh, the same with, uh, you've seen the movie Ben-Hur. Judah was his name. Hur was his daddy's name or his family name. Judah Ben-Hur. Uh, if we were to use this today, I would be Isaac Bar-Lamar. Lamar is my daddy's name. Um, and they went by their first names, not last names. So the family name would be Lamar, which would make my name Isaac Lamar, which would be very confusing. That's why they quit using it, I'm pretty sure. <laughs> They started using last names. And then they'd give some people, you know, funny-sounding ones like Mooney Ham to enjoy during school <laughs> and all the different ways you can make a joke about it. But what does he say here to this guy known as the son of Jesus? He says, no, you're son of the devil. You're, you're, you're Elimus Bar Diablo or, or something like that. Uh, you're an enemy of all righteousness, full of all deceit. We're not used to language like this. I don't think we'd ever expect to hear anybody address someone as a Christian inside the church or outside the church with this type of tone. We'd say, watch your, your tone, Paul. But if you look at it closely, it, it's different than we might assume. Paul didn't say these things about this man. He said them to his face. That's different. If you're really going to tell somebody off, make sure you do it right to their face, not to someone else for it to get back. It, it'll be delivered differently. So we've got all that we need to blame this on the Holy Spirit. If you look at it, who was also called Paul, filled with the Holy Spirit, looked intently at him and said, question is, why was this necessary? Why is this called for? Did your mom ever use that term? Me and my brother would do something off the wall. She'd say, that's just not called for. Or that's uncalled for. Y'all are laughing. You've heard it said before. Is this called for? It's called for because there's another man involved. His name is Sergius Paulus. He called these men in to hear the gospel. And he's not able to hear the gospel because this bar Jesus is in the way. Luke told us that this was an intelligent man, by the way. It means he was a thinking man. The devil hates a man who dares to think. Why? Well, eventually he'll notice the act of God and through nature, and he'll probably ask questions like, why am I here? What's my purpose? 
Uh, Paul's very clear that we're all without excuse because we've, we, we're able to understand the things that are not seen by the things that are, his creative work. If you think too long, you'll ask the right question. So it's better to just, with sleight of hand or magic or whatever else, keep everyone distracted. All we know is that this Bar-Jesus was of the order of the Magi. Um, to say magician or sorcerer can kind of be misleading. And in some regard, it's not necessarily a bad thing. You remember there were the Magi who went to seek out the king. Turns out to be the baby Jesus and worshipped him. That's the Christmas story. Uh, following stars, there's even some that speculate that it was Daniel that in his work left the trail for them to come back. We don't know that for certain. This is not sleight of hand like card tricks, things you'd see from you know clown you hire for kindergarten party. That's not the magic going on here. This has to do more or less with chemistry and with astrology, chemicals and star charts. And as long as they weren't used to magnify oneself and to exert power over people by making things up, which clearly this man is doing, really the, the front runner for chemistry and, and space programs came to us from the study of these men. Think about it. They were able to take ships all over the oceans by looking at the stars. They had no GPS. Uh, I, I, I can't get to some of your homes without a GPS. I remember using maps. The glove box in my Mustang used to just be full of maps. And I, I just, it's not my gift. I'm directionally challenged. But to think of the things that were done in antiquity, it, 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 it's quite impressive. But this guy's in trouble because the severest of all words in the Bible seem to be reserved for those who would stand between man and the truth. That's where the snake was cursed. That's where so many others are. And to stand between men and God opposing or upholding the truth of God's word is what draws this harsh speech. This harsh speech, some would call hateful speech, is for the love of this man, Sergius Paulus. There's a reason why a church would have a statement of faith and why they would hold to that and why they would restrict some teachers. No, you've got to teach in accordance with this statement of faith. It's, It's that important. There's a reason why we would only support certain missionaries who are also right there with the things that we believe to be true out of this book. Why could we say that we love a lost world and wish to give them the truth of the gospel if we're okay with people who would twist it or water it down or pervert it? If there are teeth given by the Holy Spirit to snarl at the enemy, it's for the love of the truth of the gospel. So the point of those verses, we'll get back to that when we look at these first three. Uh, The Holy Spirit empowers the preservation of the word. Who's who's the, the traffic cop to issue tickets or to shut down uh, the resistance of, of those who would wage war against the truth of God? It's the Holy Spirit. And any ministry that doesn't have that, where anything goes and no boat is rocked, no feathers are ruffled, no toes are stepped on, then there's probably no Holy Spirit directing that ministry. So, if you recall in chapter 11, let, let's back up a bit to get to verse 1 of uh, verse, or chapter 13. In chapter 11, we read of unnamed men from Cyprus and Cyrene who took the gospel to Antioch. Uh, As the persecution went out, there's these men. They don't even have names, but we know where they go. They go to Cyprus and Cyrene. And people were saved as a result of their work. And then the apostles sent Barnabas to check it out to make sure it was all kosher. 
I use that worm, that word slightly as a joke. Uh, when we get to chapter 15, we'll find out how much the church needs to be kosher or not. <laughs> um, that's about a month from now. So the apostle sent Barnabas. He checks it out. When he sees it, he begins to preach and encourage them to remain steadfast in the Lord. What you're doing, keep on doing. It's a good work. People are being saved. The Holy Spirit's all over it. Then he goes to find Paul to bring him back to Antioch so they could both teach there. And we learned that they do that for about a year. So Barnabas likes it so much, he says, I know just the man for this work, and it's Paul, and we're going to go teach there. So for a year, Barnabas and Paul have been teaching in Antioch, and we'll have to be careful. There are about three Antiochs geographically. This is the same Antioch in chapter 11 as we're reading about in 13. So this is where we pick up the story. Now there were in the church at Antioch prophets, teachers, Barnabas, this list of five names, including Saul at the end. They're worshiping the Lord, fasting. Holy Spirit says, set apart Barnabas and Saul for the work I've called them to. Then they pray once more, fast once more, set hands or lay hands on them and send them off. So here's how we're going to organize this, okay? In these three verses, you have at least three things going on. And the first, and these are out of order, so just hang on. First is the declared activity of the Holy Spirit. I mentioned that first because it's the main point. That's what we're to get out of here. The Holy Spirit said to this church, Barnabas and Paul are my guys. I'm sending them out. I want you to approve it. Second of all, we're going to look at the conditions necessary for that church to perceive the activity of the Holy Spirit. If the Holy Spirit's going to tell them what to do, they need to be able to hear what he's saying, right? How many of you would say, oh, I know all about hearing the Holy Spirit and know all about how to perceive exactly what he wants me to do? All right, now you know that's going to be a good point, right? <laughs> Who knows how to listen to the Holy Spirit and know exactly what he, these people do? It's for us to learn how. And then the third one, the cooperation of the church with the Holy Spirit. So once he's told them what he wants them to do, we watch how they carry out what he's told them to do. So we'll look at one at a time. First, the action of the Holy Spirit. Right behind the Holy Spirit said. What do you think about that? Would it be a good thing in a church if the Holy Spirit speaks? Oh, yeah. Even better if the church can hear or perceive or in the right place to, to get it. But to think that the Holy Spirit speaks to the church and that the Spirit of God made His will known to these people so that they had neither doubt nor uncertainty of what He was saying. That is remarkable. We read nothing about, well, what do you think it means? Well, I don't know what it means. They seem to be agreed as to what it means and specifically what it means. So what did the Holy Spirit say? Set apart Barnabas and Saul for the work which I have called them. So he's called them, but now he wants the church to set them apart. We'll get to this then. The calling part is God's business. The sending part is the church's business, and it's the Holy Spirit that's letting them know that's how it works. So why he's chosen two out of the list of five, Barnabas and Paul, not the other guys, we aren't told. Luke doesn't tell us. God knows. We don't. They are to be set apart, and that means they're to be given freedom and authority. Freedom to leave the responsibilities of the local body. They're going to leave a teaching hole in that church, right? When you say if your main teaching pastor leaves the church, you'll need to fill that spot. <laughs> um, yeah. So they're going to have to leave those responsibilities, but then with the authority of the calling given to them by the Holy Spirit as recognized by the local body in Antioch. So when these guys roll in or roll through Cyprus, who are you? Oh, we're Saul and Barnabas. And what are you here for? To preach the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Okay, who's, who's sent you on this deputation? Church in Antioch. So God has called them, but the church has set them apart and given them these credentials. There is a living, breathing body of 
brothers and sisters saved by the same gospel who together perceive the giftedness of these teachers. That's their credentials. And if you notice, while we're reading through the gospels and Acts and most of the epistles, they start out with those credentials, don't they? I, Paul, blah, 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 from this church or that church. You've got his list of credentials. This idea that we're just supposed to trust that anybody who's carrying a Bible, that they know what to do with it, is, is, not, is not cool. Over and over and over in the Scripture, there's this mandate to, to keep faithful to the faith once delivered to the saints. It was finalized before it was ever handed down. It's, it's the message Christ left with us. So following that pedigree is of, of, of paramount importance. Well, this also begs the question here, doesn't it? How could they be so sure? How can anyone be so sure that they're hearing the voice of the Holy Spirit and knowing what it says? Don't Christians, especially young Christians, wrestle with this? If you've ever been to camp, isn't that one of the big deals? What's God's will for my life? Where do I go to school? Who do I marry? Um, all that stuff. It, it can, it's maddening. I don't think it has to be as difficult as we make it out to be. And we'll learn more about that in the weeks to come as we study through. But to know the will of God, the voice of God, for us, most of it's written down in this book. And if you're obeying, well, say, well, specifically, it doesn't have the name of this, my spouse to be. Well, there's principle enough in here to know a mate when you see one. So, again, for another time, but how did they know? So this is point number two, the conditions necessary for this church to perceive the moving of the Holy Spirit. The conditions that made it possible to receive the direction of God are as follows. These are all from the text. First of all, they had a good church. Second of all, they had good teaching. And third, they had good worship. We'll have to define what that word worship means. So let's look at each of those under this second point. Conditions necessary to hear the voice of God. Here you go. Now there were in the church at Antioch. You had a church involved. That's where it started. God spoke to the church. The people saved by his name. It happened in a church. A gathering of brothers and sisters in Christ, called, loved, and kept in Christ, united together in the family of God for the work of the ministry of God, so as to say the accountability inherent to life together under the word of God is indispensable in determining the direction God would have us go. He's not going to be talking to other people. If he's going to talk, he's going to talk through his church. Of course, he speaks through his word. But the authority of the word is most prominent in the ears of the people who belong to its author. So God had also, through the Holy Spirit, that's a good church. Second step, they had good, good teaching. God had also, through his Holy Spirit, given gifts to the church. If you look at it again, now there were in the church at Antioch, so it was a church... But that church had prophets and teachers. Now, what about prophets and teachers? What can we say about those? Well, prophets were men of insight and foresight who can see into the heart of truth and speak forth the words of God over a wide range of general expertise. Now, this we do believe in most regards kind of phased out of what we see in the New Testament. The canon of Scripture being closed and written, there's the idea of prophesying as it was done in the early church, a lot of which was written down and turned into Scripture itself, uh, more weight seems to rest on the, the office of these teachers. Teachers were men of understanding who are able to teach that understanding to others. That's a little more straightforward. Someone studies their Scripture understands what it means and explains what it means to someone else such that they can understand what it means. And some people are gifted at this better than others. That's the point here. God gave gifts of teaching. Paul and Barnabas were good at it. And when they got done teaching, people understood. And when they got done understanding, they obeyed. And when they obeyed, you've got a church that the Spirit of God can talk to 
and they can receive what he's saying. So not only did they have a church and gifts within that church, and I believe God gives gifts to church today. You've been to churches where it just looks like, wow, they've got some good gifts going on here. And they've organized structures around those gifts to let those gifts do their thing. And there's structures around those gifts to keep those gifts from going out of control or the devil twisting those gifts in certain ways. You've probably been to a church where, you know, it just looks like things are clicking. You've probably been to a church where it looks like it's just basically a glorified pickup game. Well, they did that last week, somebody else's turn. Well, maybe they're not gifted to it. Their turn may be no good. <laughs> it doesn't matter. It's still their turn. Um, I'm a strong proponent of gift-led ministry. Find what God gifted a person to do and then turn them loose within that ministry to use those gifts. And then you'll see the work of God happen. And the strangest thing about it all, they'll like doing it. You won't have to call them up and find out where they are. If they're gifted to do this, you probably can't keep them from doing it. Like you wouldn't keep Paul and Barnabas from doing what Paul and Barnabas are doing here. But if you took one of those other three guys and made them do it, it might not have worked out so well. Holy Spirit knows how this works because he's the one that gave out the gifts, right? Very practical. All right, there's another thing. There's a word about their worship. So they had good church, they had good teaching, which is gifting, and then worship here. The word translated worshiping in the ESV and ministered in the King James Version is the word we get liturgy from. So if you look at it, um, while they were worshiping or while they were liturgying, <laughs> I don't think that's a real word, but the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said. So the Holy Spirit speaks in an environment of worship, prayer, and fasting. And then when it's all done, they fast, they pray, they lay hands and send them off. So the word liturgy, and, and it comes from liturgical. It could mean anything like pre-written prayers. I have a wonderful book. It's called a, a liturgy, and it's got prayers pre-written about all types of subjects. Uh, there are certain churches, I hope this doesn't offend anyone, but there are loose churches and there are tight churches. Uh, starched or wrinkled, uh, hard clothes or soft clothes, <laughs> right? It's kind of a, 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 an atmosphere almost. There are some with all the bells and smells, and there are some that are as wide open as, okay, anybody have a word for the Lord? There's the microphone. One is liturgical, the other would not be. Liturgical means the, the set order of worship. And in the early church, it was very simple. It was just preaching the Bible, reading the Bible, singing the Bible, and viewing the Bible and the, the baptism and the Lord's Supper. We talk about these sorts of things in uh, new members. But to describe set forms of worship, the real thought, if we're really going to drill down into that Greek word, is the function of the separate organs of the body within the church together under the leading of the Holy Spirit, which means that not only the gifts are being used, teaching, prophesying, but the organs are engaged, the individual names of the people that make up the body. Just like Paul would say, there's eyes, there's ears, there's hands, there's feet, there's a brain. With you've got a church together, you've got all these individual organs that make that body function correctly. In this way, they're all in on it. So when you say that the whole church is fasting and praying and worshiping, um, what you could say of prayer, praying in the Spirit, is praying in line with the Word of God. If He said, I want this done, and you pray toward that, it'll get done because He's already promised to bless it, right? You can pray outside the Spirit, Lord, I want a million dollars. There's no one in the Scripture that says, if you pray for a million dollars, I'll give it to you. Because He knows that we're probably better fit for the kingdom without the million dollars. Unless, of course, He gave us the gift of generosity, and He plans on 
giving that million dollars away <laughs> for some reason or another. He knows, but we've got to perceive these things. What this does here, when you see the second use of fasting along with prayer, it seems to indicate a special season of spiritual focus within this church in Antioch where Christ's body separates itself from other interests except this worship slash ministering to the Lord regarding the sending out of these two men. What do I mean by all that? Their sending out these men was more important to them than what they were going to have for lunch. Now, I don't know about you. Wake Chapel is probably not the only one in this boat. Probably every church that meets on Sunday before lunch, one of the biggest deterrents to paying attention is what's for lunch. <laughs> and wh when do we get to go to lunch? And will we get there before the other church's people get there and we'll have to stand in line? Why is it that that stuff seems to happen in the scriptures when we find them not just praying, but when we find them praying and fasting. I, I, I remember an illustration one time being said, hey, when God's children don't eat, God takes notice. I think that's probably true because if one of our kids were to stop eating, it wouldn't go without their mother's notice. One of your kids isn't eating anything for a few days, something's wrong, Right? I think, though, the better way to look at it is God's children listen to him better when they're not eating. If they're not eating on purpose so they can be less distracted with, with listening. And the reason why is hunger is a terrible distraction. But it's a wondrous reminder of your dependence on God. If you don't eat, you'll die. And he knows that. So when we don't eat, it's like saying, you need me. You need me a lot. You really know you need me a lot when you're not eating. And that line of communication can focus itself to where nothing really matters except for hearing the word of the Lord. We've got stuff coming up within this ministry that might actually call for more than prayer. This idea of building a building and what it'll cost. That, that, that I don't know, needs as much fasting as once that building's built and we have space and there are more people coming with more needs and more children to teach, more adults to teach, more people to serve, more people to get to know, more people to hold each other accountable, where we think that the building with more space will answer all our questions, it only begins the list of questions. And will we need more help after we're so big? There's so many people. No one person could ever know their names. Absolutely. Uh, as the children's ministry grows, we'll need more volunteers. And not just more shallow volunteers, but deep ones. Deep ones that actually know their Bibles and are gifted by God to get on a child's level. And to almost, with all the best in mind infect that child with the love of Jesus so that it never leaves their memory. And when they're older, they're set. They have the answers to life's most important questions so that when they're old, they can refer back to the teachers that made me who I am rather than just a host of people I never knew very much because I never knew their face. I only saw them like three or four times out of the year or whatever. When you read of praying and worshiping, and fasting, there's nothing shallow about this church. This one's bought in, dug in, deep-rooted, and their ears are wide open for what the Holy Spirit has to sell them. Tell them, not sell them. Maybe it has to sell them on what it's telling them. But a church with this attitude, I'm convinced, will not mistake his voice. The Holy Spirit didn't speak to the city of Antioch or its government or its businessmen or women or its arts or its culture. He spoke to the church of called out brothers and sisters saved by grace. He spoke and they were listening. So third, and this is how they cooperated once they understood what he said. 
The last reference to fasting and prayer was on behalf of the men who were to be sent away. They laid their hands on them and obediently released them. Now, if you're tracking so far and you're a really good student, you might have noticed by now that we're at the end of all the text and there was nothing specifically said as to how the Holy Spirit said what he said. It was only on how the people listened to what he said, but nothing is said about how. The text doesn't say, so anything from here on out would be speculation, but I I would think if I were to speculate how it happened was that he spoke through one of those gifts, either one of the teachers or one of the prophets, and when they spoke among the whole group, the whole group immediately said, that's it. That resonates with my heart on this issue. That makes perfect sense. And it makes perfect sense because we probably wouldn't do it that way. We like being the church where Paul speaks. Do we like being the church that sent Paul on his way? Especially if all the people who were listening to Paul followed Paul down to Cyprus to hear him preach because their internet connections were real slow. They couldn't live stream it. They wanted to hear him in person. They had to go see him in person. So, look one last time at verse 3. After fasting and praying, they laid their hands on them and sent them off. That actually is a clumsy um, Greek to English there. They're doing the best they can. But it's nice that in verse 4, it's cleared up crystal. Being sent out by the Holy Spirit. So, who's doing the sending? The Holy Spirit's doing the sending. And the calling. And if that's what's happening, what is it that the church is doing? Well, it says they sent them. Well, not specifically. What the church is really doing is releasing them. That's the hard part. And the way they release them is by caring for their obligations, filling the holes that their absence will create, and by taking responsibility for their needs as they now are in transit teaching the gospel. Sometimes Paul will be a tent maker. Sometimes he'll need support. But this is how we operate when we hire missionaries, isn't it? When they're sent out, we take care of them. So at the end of the story, and this is a prelude to weeks to come, some of them have to go because they've been called and they've been sent, but most of them stay. And I suppose the final word for the individual, as we wrap this up, because no man or woman can go unless the Spirit calls them. You, know, you, you really don't want someone in the mission field who hasn't been called by God. Maybe he was called by his mama or his daddy or somebody else. It won't work good. Whenever you come across, I'm going to the mission field. Oh, really? What are you going to do there? I'm going to win the lost. Well, how many lost have you won while you're here? Well, I, I'm going to wait till I get to the field to do that. Well, you'll probably do it there as good as you do it here, which is none. Um, speaking with a missionary the other day, you'll get to hear from him soon. He's one of our more recent uh, missionaries we've added to our portfolio here at Wake Chapel. He's talking about calling, especially in the difficult areas, that without a calling, that's what you're born to do. A lot of them come back because they're not equipped for such things. God gifts and equips for the work he sends us on. So for the individual, because no man or woman can go unless the Spirit calls them, that's for the Spirit to determine because men can't make a minister, not even the church, not even seminaries. Only God can call them. And then we learned how the church is here to recognize that and release them. But here's, here's your uh, three options. Take this home with you. This is, this is conclusion. As far as missions go, what we've learned from this passage, and it'll be strengthened by the following. First option is go. You can go yourself. It'll require God calls you to do it. And the rest of us will look in awe because those of us not called wonder how you will do it. But it's our privilege to be able to release you and to support you. So that's the second option, to send. Either you go or you send. Sending is straightforward. We've just studied it. Number three, that's your other option. You can just be disobedient. Disobedient. 
because you're either going to send or you're going to go. But any Christian who understands the wealth of the gospel can't just say, I'm neither going nor sending. It's one or the other, or disobedience. And again, what comes to my mind is what was said a few weeks ago, Ecclesiastes, making the bold moves with wisdom and spreading your bread out on the water to see if it comes back. In what ways is Wake Chapel sending such that when we get to glory, we'll find that having returned? We can do that abroad. We've got a diverse portfolio of overseas missions. We've got some more locally. So you can say we've got our Jerusalem, our Judea, our Samaria, and the uttermost parts of the world. We've got a lot to do here in Jerusalem, too. If a church is growing, so do the concerns. And these are the things that I think the Lord has in store for us from his word. He's going to give us what we need. It'll just be our option to go, to send, or to be disobedient. But with that said, let's just close in prayer. Father in heaven, we thank you for another Sunday and to get back into the book of Acts where your word goes out and you bring people in from a bizarre story. Lord, help us to understand that it's important. We would never talk to everybody that same way. Paul doesn't talk to that, that way to everybody. But sometimes the gospel needs defending. And then, Lord, there are times where you send people out. And it's a hard decision and we have to hear your voice. Or a ministry needs to go left or right or maintain course. Lord, tell us. As we're in the position to listen, may we be a church of prayer. May we be a church of worship. May we be a church of fasting. And may we know when it's time to do all that together. Lord, thank you for this installment, our portion for today. As we leave this place, would you give us something to do, someone to tell, something to pray for, maybe something to fast over. And we'll be happy to hear your direction. We ask all this in the precious name of Jesus. Amen.